Welcome to Where RA Now, a podcast dedicated to catching up with former RAs and hearing where their journey of life has taken them since their glory days at New York University. My name is Leila Elagizi, and I'm tonight's co-host, a senior from New Jersey studying media, culture, and communications in Steinhardt, and I'm currently an RA at Founders Hall. And I'm Tom Ellett, your other co-host, and I serve as the Senior Associate Vice President of Student Affairs. Leila, welcome to the podcast. Happy to be here. Very excited. Let's talk a little bit about your career aspirations. You're a senior. I am a senior. It's very scary. I'm in a transitional period right now. Relax. Breathe. You have a whole semester. You have the Wasserman Center waiting there for you. You will be fine. We can only hope. I doubt. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about what you want to do long term. So I am currently an MCC major, but I have really been taking a lot of classes in the music business school through my minor and my current dream honestly is I want to work in a promotional company um, curating live music experiences. Fantastic. So how has the music scene been in New York City for you? It's been amazing. It's probably one of the biggest reasons I wanted to come to New York. Just accessibility to venues and shows and concerts every night of the week. I have started to listen to all different kinds of music now because of it and just like honestly there's no better place. You're not kidding. Favorite genre of music for you? I'm really into rock music but I'm also very very into house and techno music. Well you're gonna love tonight's guest. Who do we have tonight? Today our guest is E.J. Gaines, who served as an RA in Coral Towers for Catherine and Mary Veerling during the 2001 and 2003 academic years. Welcome, E.J., and thank you for joining us on tonight's show. It's a real pleasure having you on. How are you, and where are you right now? Thank you for having me. Uh, I am great. I am down in Nashville, Tennessee, where I've lived um, Gosh, since 2009, uh, so for about 10 years now, and before that I was in New York, but uh, I'm technically in an area of Nashville called Brentwood, uh, sitting in my office at Capital CMG, which is uh, a division of Capital Records and Universal Music Group. EJ, it's a pleasure to have you on, and we're going to unpack all of what you've done since you've left, but let's jump back to your time at Washington Square. What did you study while you were a student here? Um, I majored in the music business program at Steinhardt. Well, at the time that I started, it was actually called the School of Education, so that's probably dating myself. It wasn't Steinhardt until um, about three years into my time there. Everyone would always say, I'm in the music business program in the School of Education, and they would say, why education? That's just where that's just where it was. And nursing was a part of it at one point in time as well. Yeah, is it not anymore, nursing? No, it's got its own college. Oh, my gosh. Uh, yeah, that, made, that makes a lot of sense because that never made sense either. So tell us about being the president of student government and any other extracurricular activities you were involved in while you were here. <laughs> okay, the, the honest-to-God truth is that uh, I joined student government because they were giving free pizza on Fridays. Um, and they said that was the, the, the way to entice people. And so I was a freshman, of course, uh, New York City, um, didn't have a job, was kind of broke-ish. And... I thought, okay, well, at least that's one meal paid for that I don't have to use my meal plan for, so I'll go on Fridays and get free pizza, and literally all you had to do was sit there and, you know, just not not be rude and just pay attention and get free pizza. So I did that, um, and then I think at, uh, halfway through that process, I just started getting interested in some of the stuff they were talking about, and by the end of that first year, I said, you know what, there's an open position, I'll run for alternate senator, 
ran for alternate senator. Um, and then I think once I was on the kind of executive board, I started seeing all the things that I wanted to change if I were in leadership. And so I ran for president and I got it. And so then I was president. I think I may have been the first African-American uh, student government president for Steinhardt at the time. And I was that for two years. And what were some of the issues that you dealt with uh, during that time? Oh, gosh. Um, so a lot of it was um, I didn't want to just have a student government focus on um, activities. I just felt like that was a little bit, uh, I don't want to say beneath us, but it was definitely not the best use of our skill set. I think we had a really great board um, that was really trying hard to be an advocate for students and really be a voice for the constituents. So we were trying to figure out what mattered most to them. I think at the time there was a little bit of unrest about um, us not having a real, um, like the Violets not being an actual sports team that we could be proud of, like a lot of our friends at other colleges. And so as, as, <laughs> as trivial as it seems now, that was a big thing that we were trying to figure out how to like, you know, kind of get better um, academics, uh, I'm sorry, better athletics um, over at the college so that we could be proud of the Violets. Um, but there was one thing that was really, uh, it was a big deal at the time. Uh, it was my second year as student government president. I was a senior and it was really, really important to me because I was a music business major and, and, um, uh, Dr. Catherine Moore at the time had started the music business program and she had been leading it and doing a great job with it. And, um, Clive Davis was giving a gift to Tish and it was the, the year that they started the, uh, the Clive Davis school. And there was a big question about how, that uh, that program was going to interact with the music business program at Steinhardt, and a lot of that was not laid out to the to the students um, in in several different important ways. And I think that the students in the music business program felt very much like um, our program was going to be overshadowed because it wasn't attached to a name. And so suddenly we thought we're going to apply for jobs, and we're going to be applying for jobs through this you know longstanding NYU music business program. But people empl- employers are going to see you know, that someone graduated from the Clive Davis school and they're going to say, Oh, that's the music business program. And, um, and I, I made a statement at this meeting with some faculty. It was a big inflammatory thing and uh, because no one knew that I was going to do it. And it was really just my way of saying, listen, you know, Dr. Moore has done so much. She's really served this student body. And the students of the music business program are upset. And what are you, the faculty, going to do about it? Um, and ultimately, we did have like an open forum where the students got to come and voice their concerns and were responded to about it. So it worked, it worked out well. It's worked out well since, to be honest with you. Yeah, no, and I've heard that. I've heard that it has. Wow, that's great. Um, so did you always want to be an RA while you were an undergrad? No, no. If you want the honest truth on that one, and this is going to sound like I just want free stuff, right? But <laughs> at the time, it was just exciting because, hey, you get free uh, room and board. Um, but there was a part of me that was a little bit... Um, as much as that appealed to me, there was also the part of me that really wanted to help students. I was a student guide, like a tour guide. Um, I did orientations. I stayed at, at, on campus during the summers, and I did orientations and tours, um, of course, kind of a, in part with me being student government president. And I remember just wanting to be a resource, and I thought that was a cool idea that I could be kind of a peer resource for students um, where we live. Um, of course, the, the free room and board uh, kind of tipped the scales in my favor in that regard, but I do think that um, there was at least some degree of an altruistic intent behind it that I wanted to help others. So I never had wanted to do it before. Um, before I got to college, it wasn't something I even knew was a thing to do. I didn't know who 
you know, who stayed there. I thought it was just adults that maybe stayed in the dorms with you. Um, but once I got there and I started to see the programming and the activities and the resource that RAs were, I, I really was interested in, um, in kind of seeing if it's something I, I could do. EJ, what was it like to be an RA in Coral, an upper-class building? Uh, it was fun. Coral was pretty much a brand-new building at the time. Um, I think we maybe had been open for a year before I was there. Um, and it was, if I recall, the layout was kind of, um, a lot of them were suites that had one big room and then, you know, two people sharing the other room. And so you knew that you were going to get people who were, um, not new to the college experience. You knew that you were going to get people there who had enough lottery points to choose to be there. Um, and so it kind of built this, um, this sense of pride in 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 the dorm because it wasn't just a place where people were being shoehorned or stuck as a result of like losing out on something. It was actually one of the properties that people wanted to be at. And so, um, I think that there was a lot of pride in our building. There was a lot of pride in the activities that we did. There was a lot of pride in the space. People wanted to respect the space and take care of it because they knew it was new and it was, it was kind of a, a privilege to have been able to get into that. So you mentioned a lot of pride in the building. How did that impact your relationships? What kind of relationships do you have with your residents? And are you still in contact with any of them? I don't have relationships now with any of my uh, any of my residents aside from the ones that I was already friends with. So, of course, once um, <laughs> once your friends find out that you're an Ari, a lot of them try to get on your floor because, like, how awesome is that that you get to live next door to your your closest friends, right? So, um, those I still have friendships with, um, but there were great relationships all around. I think you know. It, the task was really intentional. Um, CM, Captain Mary, we called her CM at the time. Um, CM was really intentional about leading us as a staff and saying, take the time to learn each of the residents because at some points, varying points along the school year, you're going to interact with them. You're going to do one program where, you know, one room comes together and they do it and it's a service activity and they love it. Another time you're going to do a movie night and you're going to get a different group of people all together. But the goal is that you're going to be able to serve everybody where they are. And I think that that was, that was a fun time. There was one resident I had, I do not remember her name, but I remember this about her. She was dare I say, freakishly a fan of Michael Jackson. Um, she was such a fan that she had posters and letters and, you know, a journal. I mean, she was like the kind that, you know, you probably kind of would put on a red list someplace because you didn't know like, if she was crossing the line of, like, fanaticism. But, and so I thought, well, how am I, how am I supposed to connect with her? Because I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't know what to do with that. Um, but I think that I, I love Michael Jackson. So I just decided, listen, we'll talk about Michael Jackson. I was talking about the Moonwalker movie. I was talking about the time that he performed in Budapest. I mean, just whatever I could that I knew about Michael Jackson, because I remember thinking I'm supposed to connect with her and I need to have a relationship or at least some, um, some foundational point of contact with each of my residents so that they can see me as a resource. That's great. What skills did you gain be, by being an RA? I think every, every RA across the board would probably say that if they took it seriously and they really were, were decent at the job, um, gained people skills that they were able to take outside of college into their careers and into like social life, um, that's a given. Because you know essentially you are um, the, the landlord almost for a group of people on the floor that have different backgrounds, cultural backgrounds, religious backgrounds, socioeconomic backgrounds, tons of differences, tons of political opinions that vary from one another, and yet you are one cohesive unit. 
um, when it comes time for a fire drill, you are moving in the same <laughs> in the same cadence. You have to move together. Um, you know, we were, I was decorating um, for the floor, and it had to be something that was sensitive to everybody, that was relevant for everybody. Um, and I had to change the bulletin board once a month, and so it had to be something that I was programming with intentionality to be able to uh, represent an entire group of people, even though those people were completely different. Um, and so I think that's a skill that anybody, um, now looking at my career, for example, leading a team of people in my profession, all from different walks of life, it's, it's a similar thread of a skill set. I don't, I don't know that I necessarily look at it in that way, or I, I point back to my time as an RA for that, but I know that that's another area where I strengthen that muscle. Um, but one thing that was really, um, pivotal, of course, because I was an RA, um, in 2011, um, is that I was there uh, during the, the uh, 9-11 attacks. And that was a life-changing experience. I mean, aside from the fact that I literally watched from my balcony, room 602, um, watched the towers fall and saw them on fire before that, um, and that the tanks literally pulled up and, and, and formed a line down 14th Street on my street, and we couldn't even cross the street to the bodega to get food without showing our ID because we couldn't cross we couldn't go south of 14th and 3rd um, for that day. Um, at the time, we were setting out pallets, and we were trying to figure out how to do grief counseling. And we were trying, we were kids, trying to figure out how to counsel our peers who were displaced, you know, in the dorms down there. And so suddenly, we're trying to figure out, okay, if we set the basement up and, you know, section off these areas, can we fit all these, how many, how many girls can we fit over here, and how many guys can we fit in that room? And, hey, what about that room where we normally do movies? What if we set food out there and we get snacks? And it was just... Um, it was it was it was a crisis response, but it was really a humanitarian response. I mean, we didn't know what we were doing, and we were definitely following CM's lead on it. Um, but it required us to think outside of ourselves, to to be decent human beings, and then also to be leaders in areas of emotional trauma and grief, um, and just sensitivity and compassion. And that's something that I don't know. I don't know that I've been so um, immersed in that kind of experience since then. Yeah, that was my second, um, beginning of my second month at NYU, and that happened, and you captured it really, really well. The RAs were phenomenal yeah. during such a really difficult time in the city's history. Yeah, it was such a it was such a moment. I mean, the entire city came together. I think anyone who lived there at that time would remember there was never a time of unity that they had seen like that before. Like, I mean, everyone was a New Yorker. Everyone was, it didn't matter how long you had lived there or what, that was the one unifying event that made us all New Yorkers and made us all have something in common. Yeah, definitely. Um, so what was the best aspect of attending NYU, would you say? So I'm originally from Chicago, so I'm a city guy, like in the city um, proper, not like a suburb or, or, you know, some kind of side neighborhood of it, but like a city guy. So going from Chicago to New York um, felt really great. It was just kind of a bigger city. And I I remember going to, to NYU and thinking, I want to pursue the music business and I want to be as in it as I possibly can be while still uh, excelling in school. And there was something about living in New York and the dorms being former apartment buildings and you walking down the street and knowing that you're passing, you know, um, Astor Place and Webster Hall and all these iconic areas of New York. And that's where you're going to school. And that's the formative, that's the formative years of your kind of early adulthood. It made me feel very much like 
I was already in the mix of life, that I wasn't like in some secluded campus, you know, with the quad. And I know a lot of friends I have did that, um, but I was so ready to get into life uh, and New York let me do that. NYU allowed me the opportunity to feel like I was directly in, in, in the middle of life with still some of the protections of college. I still had a meal plan. I still knew I could go to Weinstein. I don't even know if to <laughs> go to Weinstein and get, get go to p- the little pizza hut stand and swipe, you know, and get a pizza. And that's just the convenience that you don't have anymore once you're an adult. But um, it kind of gave me that balance and the best of both worlds where I could feel like I was kind of into my adulthood a little bit, even though I was still in a protected space. You captured it really well in terms of the college experience. And so thanks so far for speaking to us about what it was like at NYU. We're going to take a short break, but when we come back, we're going to jump into your current role and your experiences working as a co-executive director of Motown Gospel and the vice president of marketing Capital Christian Music Group. We'll be right back. Sorry to interrupt this amazing podcast. My name's Ron Rapitalo, and I was an RA at Weinstein Hall from 1996 to 1997. Wanted to let you all know that I am a life and career coach. So if you're interested in my services, check me out at Ron Rapitalo, R-A-P-A-T-A-L-O.com. I offer free 15-minute consultations if you sign up via my website. So if you're looking to explore what you want to do next in your career, or if you're stuck in your life, give me a shout out. Peace out, always. Welcome back, EJ. We've just heard from you about your experiences while at NYU. Now we're going to talk a little bit about what you've been doing since you've left. So you received a law degree. What um, made you choose to do that rather than work full-time? Yeah, so I um, I finished uh, undergrad. I had interned at Jive Records. Uh, and then at its sister label, which is a gospel label at the time, it was called Verity Records. All of those were owned by a company called Zamba. And at the time, Zamba was being acquired by BMG and then merging with Sony. So um, there were a lot of layoffs in the building, and there were not any hires <laughs> happening in the building. And so, um, you know, of course, ideally, you're interning someplace and hoping to get hired fresh out of college. Well, I had been interning someplace for a year, and they didn't have a job for me because of a larger, you know, corporate merger. So I was out of a job, and I thought, well, this is not good. Um, let me figure out what I'm going to do. Fortunately, my father lived uh, in North Jersey, so I just moved over there for the summer, and I was started like looking for jobs and applying for jobs in the industry. It was just not a good time to try to get in the music business. Um, I had a friend uh, who's a recording artist by the name of Donnie McClurkin, and Donnie said to me, well, why don't you just come and work for me? Um, and I said, well, that would be awesome. You know, what do you want me to do? And he said, well, you can be my assistant. And I'm like, here we go. This is great. I'm, you know, entry level. This is awesome. And he said, you'll be the assistant at the church where I'm starting to, you know, build a church. And I said, well, I want to be, I want to be an assistant to the recording artist, not an assistant to the pastor. And he said, well, you're going to be, you'll be the assistant to the pastor who happens to be a recording artist. So you'll get, you'll get experience in it, but you'll get, you'll get a check and you'll stop living at your dad's house. And I thought that was reasonable. Um, so I started working with him and, um, we were great friends, but I did not like, um, (laughs) he and I would probably laugh about it now. I didn't like working for him. I did not like the vibe. I didn't like how it made me feel. I didn't like kind of having to be at the beck and call. If you've ever seen the devil wears Prada, I feel like that was like a 
page out of my life at the time. And it wasn't, um, it wasn't nearly as malicious. That was probably a little bit more dramatized than, um, than, than what I was dealing with, but it was a lot of that kind of being the first one in the last one out, um, things that I perceived to be unfair, things that I perceived to be unreasonable. And what do you do about it? At the end of the day, you're an assistant to the person who needs assistance. And, um, the person is not going to change. You have to adapt. And so I decided I was going to make my little exit strategy very silently. Uh, I took an, uh, bought an LSAT book from Barnes and Noble and every Saturday for months, I would just study and do practice tests in my, in my apartment. Um, and I said, well, you know what? I'll take the LSAT. And if I do well enough, I'll go to law school. Uh, I don't remember to this day what my score was. Um, I think it was decent enough. And I said, okay, you know what? I go, I'll go ahead and I'll, I'll apply. And if I get in, uh, I might go. Applied, got in, and I got a full ride uh, to St. John's University in, in Queens. And so I said, well, you know what? I should go and do this because this is a free legal education. And why would you not? So quit my job and went to law school. I had never intended to necessarily go that route, though. I thought I was just going to jump into the music industry and do it. Um, but my stepfather is an entertainment attorney, among other types of law. And I had seen kind of a roadmap for how that would go or how that could go. And I thought, you know what? This would be a good um, a tool to have in my toolkit, regardless of if I practice law full-time or not. I want to go ahead and get this law degree for free real quick, and then I'll be right back. Tell us how that helped you as it relates to the music career. Yeah, it's a big help. I was just having a conversation with um, some students I was speaking to about this last week, and someone said, you know, do you find that in your daily profession in the music business that having a law degree helps? And I think it does uh, in many ways. One, the very... um, kind of surface level thing is that people hear you have a law degree and they think that you're better than everyone else. I don't believe that, but I know that that's the perception that if you, if you approach someone who's an attorney, you give them a greater degree of deference or a greater degree of respect, or you assume that they have the upper hand in some way. And in business, that's always a good um, position to be in with a negotiation. Um, but then on a, on a more realistic and practical level, um, I am able to shorthand a lot of the work that our company would otherwise have to do um, through a very overworked business affairs department. So when I see an an opportunity, I can draft deal points and get them to our business affairs team. I understand the shorthand. I know exactly what we're saying. I know know how... um, how changing something within a negotiation will will affect the other terms of the deal. Um, I can start to have, you know, generally some pretty advanced or sophisticated conversations with an artist manager uh, about what I think a deal will yield. Um, and I know how to run P&Ls to see if a deal is going to be profitable. And a lot of that stuff comes from years of experience doing deals for other artists and systems, knowing what's negotiable, knowing what's not really negotiable, knowing which levers to pull back on, knowing where something is a complete ripoff. Um, and so it does help me on a daily basis because I, I'm able to kind of survey the terrain and make quick decisions. So you kind of talked about how you got your start in the music industry after graduation and then getting your law degree, but I was just wondering, um, when did your interest in music begin, and then how did you begin your career after graduation? Yeah. So I... um I've always been interested in music. Um, my, my dad and my mom are musical. My mother, would uh, she played piano in, in her church um, 
as you know for her entire life essentially and um would sing in the choir and stuff and so she just loved music and then my dad just loves music he never did anything professional or even at church as a as as a a musician or a singer but he played it all the time my entire house my entire life was always filled with music i didn't care if you he was cooking if he was you know getting dressed for the day if he was lifting weights there was just music on and it was music of any kind it was rock and roll it was gospel it was jazz it was r&b um it was always motown um but hearing that i just realized that this was kind of what made my world go around you know that there was this was a constant you know and there was tv we we would watch tv or we go to the movies or there were books but nothing was as present in my world on a daily basis for as long as i can remember as music is um and so i've always been interested in it but beyond the music and wanting to you know sing i would sing and i play piano and play clarinet beyond all those things um i became completely obsessed with the industry that makes the music because i guess in my mind i thought I get to read liner notes and see that there are all these humans in different parts of the country and different parts of the world who are making this soundtrack music for my life. And who are they? And what do they get paid to do? Like, and do they make this music and then they're done for forever? Or do they make other music? And, and what other stuff do they make? And if they make this and I like it, what else have they made and do I like it? You know, and so I started paying attention to who produced what and who wrote what and, and what sounds they used. And, okay, what does it mean that there's additional drum programming? Like, why would someone have to do additional drum programming and get a credit for it? Why wasn't the first drum programming enough? And all that, just, it created an entire world of wonder for me. Um, And I never, I did not know until high school that you could actually earn a living figuring all that stuff out. I just thought that's not something that you could pick as a career. Um, But once I realized that you could, that's what kind of set me on this trajectory to go to NYU and, and, and into the music business program. You focus on your career, it sounds like, on Christian and gospel music. What made you choose that genre of music? Yeah, uh, gospel music was just always a part of my upbringing. Um, And I think a lot of African Americans in America um, would attest to the fact that church um, is just a, it's a, it's a cultural part of who we are. It's just in the fabric of who we are as a people here. Um, and so in a lot of ways, I always say around the office, even now, the gospel music is often not so much a faith-based genre. It really is a cultural genre. Most black people in America just know who Kirk Franklin is. Most black people in America just know who uh, Tasha Cobbs Leonard or Yolanda Adams or CeCe Winans are um, because they are parts of our cultural experience in America. And so I think as a as a black kid growing up in Chicago, we would go to church on the Sundays and I would hear um, music either that was, you know, being sung by the choir, but that was originally written by Edwin Hawkins and Walter Hawkins or the Winans or the Clark sisters, or I would get home and my dad would be playing some of these le- legacy iconic artists like Shirley Caesar. And I just was, I was, I was aware of them. And what I started to realize is the music made me feel something. Like I would listen to some of the lyrics and some of the chord changes and I would actually feel an emotional response to what I had just heard. And I couldn't articulate and I couldn't explain it. It was just something about the mood that it put me in made me feel in a deeper way than I had ever felt about any other music that that my dad was playing. Um, And then as I got older and started um, kind of exploring faith for myself and learning more about God and, and not just God in this um, in this intellectual or theological sense, but God as it relates to him interacting with me personally um, and reading scripture from the Bible. A lot of the scriptures 
I would sing because I realized, hey, this is in that song that I heard when I was a kid. I didn't know this was a, a Bible verse. I just thought it was a lyric. And so even today, a lot of Bible verses that I know, I recite with a specific type of cadence because that's how the lyric was sung by the Clark sisters, or that's how the lyric was sung by Marvin Winans or these different gospel artists. I know scripture because of that. And so I always say I came to faith through gospel music. It's how uh, I was anchored in my life. And so to me, though I've done a lot of work in, in other genres, and I've, you know, on the legal side, I've represented a lot of artists who are not gospel and Christian singers. Um, the music that kind of is the heartbeat behind what I do and where I feel most fulfilled is in gospel and Christian music. So you're obviously in a very executive role in um, your position. So I was just wondering, what does your day-to-day look like? Oh, my day-to-day is ever-changing. Um, you know, it, it always depends. Um, today, for example, um, we had um, an artist re- release an album, really re- re-release an album um, that had been out before and was taken off of digital accounts. Um, and so that was a big thing that we were just trying to, I woke up, um, pretty early this morning, trying to make sure that it was exactly where it should be, um, and it was live everywhere. And then, of course, I went to social media to see what the response was. A lot of my daily tasks involve um, the internet, of course, but also social media because I'm trying to gauge consumer response to things that we're doing. Um, it's funny because even as I was studying to be in the music business, these things didn't exist. So I learned things that. Um, are, we don't really use anymore, uh, and then now the things that we do have to do weren't in, in place at the time. Um, I am able to now release music and see within an hour what the response to this music is. And it may not be the complete story, but I get a good gauge on the trend. You used to release music, and you'd have to wait a week. Um, and you'd have to hope that people bought it and gave seventeen ninety nine was the price of the CD around that time. Hope that they gave seventeen ninety nine to to place their vote for liking this music. Now, they don't have to spend any money. They just hit play, and enough listens demonstrates that people liked it. I got all these streams, so clearly people like it, or it's trending, or look how fast this user engagement you know, skyrocketed. It's clear that people like this music. And so a lot of what I do is reading the data, um, but working really hard to not get lost in the data. And so um, I, we have a lot of meetings every single day I'm in a meeting. Every single day I'm looking at emails about um, that, that are giving data or giving a, a broader picture to what is actually happening around the music that we're releasing. So how do music companies stay in business if everything is free uh, in terms of the music piece? Yeah, it's, it's, I think it's a little bit of a misconception that everything is free, and, and, but it's a popular one. Um, we... We own recorded masters, record labels own recorded masters, and um, we used to receive money uh, in exchange for uh, giving people the opportunity to use those recorded masters in some way. So when people purchased the CD, they used to give uh, you know, a retailer a certain amount of money, and we had sold to the retailer one copy of that, of that master, and they would sell it. Um, and that was the end of the transaction. And so seventeen ninety nine uh, was all I was going to get from one person for this album, unless they lost it and they had to buy a new one, right? Um, and that's seventeen ninety nine less the manufacturing cost, less the shipping cost, less the whole all this stuff. Nowadays, 
all I need is for you, Tom, or you, Layla, to listen to this song eight times in a day because you just can't get enough of it, and then post it on Facebook and and, and have them listen it. And we get paid for listens. We get paid uh, for streams. There's there's licenses that have to be given uh, for these license uh, for the digital services to be able to uh, stream this music. And so if you listen to that song 800 times in a month, then I'm getting paid a lot more than I ever would have gotten paid off of your one purchase of a CD. And so though access uh, to music is now the name of the game instead of ownership of music for the end consumer, there's actually an, an, uh, um, an evergreen opportunity to earn money from it for the rights holder. Because as long as you listen to the new Ariana Grande song for the next 40 years, I'm making money every single time you listen. Well, if you had bought a CD, I only got that money the very first time, and you could listen to it for the next 40 years, and I'd never see a dime. Who inspires you musically? I'm inspired by any artist who has a compelling vision um, in music. I think that um, I, I love I love a great voice. I love talent. Um, but to me, great voices are, are almost a dime a dozen at this point. A lot of people can sing, especially in gospel music. Everyone can sing. Um, but in the industry, like a lot of people can sing. That's not a hard thing to do to find someone who can sing incredibly well. Um, and a lot of people can write, actually. Um, and so it's not necessarily an incredibly difficult thing to find a good songwriter. But it is very hard to find someone who's a great singer and a great songwriter who has a compelling vision of their own and then knows how to stand confidently and convey that vision. And to me, that's the inspiration. It is that undefinable um, it factor that you cannot manufacture, we cannot replicate, we cannot teach um, as much as we try. And, and there's a lot that we can do in terms of artist development to try to refine an artist. But at the core, it's the raw material that we don't know how it got there and we don't know how to extract it, but we sure wish we could. That is what inspires me musically. And I only see it, you only see it when you see it. You don't know how to go and, and, and cultivate it elsewhere. Um, but in terms of names, I'm inspired by, I'm inspired by Beyonce just because she, she really marches to the beat of her own drum from a vision standpoint. I'm inspired by Adele because she did the same thing. There was she's not supposed to be a white, um, uh, UK born and bred soul singer who's not a size two um, in a dress who dominates the music industry in that way. That's not supposed to happen. Um, I'm inspired by Solange um, because I think musically she creates um, kind of a visual concept of art, which is weird because sonically we're just used to listening and being done, but she literally attaches these visual components to her music and really wants people to have a, a rounded experience. Half the time I have no idea what Solange is talking about, but I can respect the heck out of it and it does inspire me. EJ, what advice do you have for an undergrad like Layla who's preparing a career as an executive in the music business? I just had this conversation with someone, uh, actually my wife, recently. Um, we were talking about the importance of um, of being excellent exactly where you are, and that every job that you have, every opportunity that you have, you have your responsibility is to collect all of the skill sets, all of the lessons, all of the excellence that are that that you can access in that place, and then take those with you. So that when you get to the next place, wherever that may be, you can use those. If you do not spend the time collecting and cultivating those things in the place you're in, you're still going to go to the next place, but you won't be equipped to do it. And 
there is uh, there is in this kind of microwave society, this fast, low barrier to entry, instant gratification culture that we have, there is an inclination to not spend time being excellent exactly where you are. And I wish to God that everybody would, would take some time to, to figure out how to be the best janitor that they can be when they're a janitor. So they can be the best receptionist, the best director, the best vice president, the, ve- the best CEO, but they're all attached. If you are a lazy janitor, <laughs> you're never going to be in a, a successful, um, confident, and full of work, work ethic CEO. You have to have the work ethic at every level. And so I think, I think that there needs to be an emphasis placed on um, being excellent exactly where you're planted, trusting the process and expecting that you're going to get someplace and that you'll be able to, to demonstrate and shine uh, down the line. Great advice. Thank you. That was actually really great to hear from you. Um, so what are you most proud of in your career to date? You know, I think because I was uh, an attorney and I, I did some artist management, I was always on the side of, of, of the artist. There's the artist side and then there's the label side and the two are adversarial. Sometimes incredibly contentious and don't get along. Um, and when I came into this company, I thought, I want to shift that narrative. I don't want that to be the case because I'm an artist-friendly label executive. Uh, I'm married to an artist. I've represented artists on law and on the side of management. And if anyone is ever going to be at, at, a, at a top seat in a, in a record label and be for the artist, it would be me. So I'm going to have to do that. And so I've worked really hard to kind of rewrite the narrative within our industry. Um, and a couple of years ago, one of our artists, Tasha Cos Leonard, uh, was, we were at the Dove Awards and she won uh, the award for Gospel Artist of the Year. And she got on stage. I tell this story all the time because it was really impactful. She got on stage and she was giving her acceptance speech and she was thanking everybody who had helped her um, over the past year, everyone that was contributing to the project. And then she said into Motown Gospel and she looked down our way and she stopped and she said, thank you. You all have done everything you promised you would do. And to me, it was the it was the crowning achievement of a lot of hard work, a lot of like late nights, a lot of teams, a lot of people, a lot of fear and anxiety, <laughs> a lot of excitement. Um, but at the end of it, I really, really, really was most desperately touched that an artist's remark about me was that I did everything I said I was going to do. I didn't need her to say, you had the great idea here, and EJ, you're the one. I didn't need that. I needed her to acknowledge, at least to me, as between us, we're good because you've come through on everything that you said. And that was probably one of the proudest moments of my career at, at, at this label. That's impressive. Uh, it shows hard work does pay off. Uh, let's go back to the old days. Uh, do, do you stay in contact with any other RA alums? Uh, if so, this is your shout-out time. <laughs> I, I, I am Facebook friends with everyone. I do a horrible job of staying in touch with most people. In fact, I never, I probably should like click right now and see who sent me a, D, a DM or a Facebook message. I'm bad about it, but I am Facebook friends with a lot of my, um, a lot of my RA friends from that time. Um, Shout out to everyone from Coral Towers 2011, 2012, 2013. Uh, we were the best and we all know it. 2001, 2, and 3, you mean? Uh, look at that. See, I don't yeah. even want it to be that. 2001, 2, and 3. You're saving a decade of Gosh, life. I, I would do the same as, as you. Let's, I, go to, yeah. let's go to speed round. Uh, what was your favorite all-time book? My favorite all-time book, I'm going to set the Bible aside, and I'm probably going to say All You Need to Know About the Music Business by Donald Passman. 
Mm, good one. Who's your favorite NYU professor? Oh, gosh, that's that's not fair. I'm going to say two, if I can. Yes, you can. Uh, Dr. Catherine Moore and then Dr. Lawrence Ferrara. Best RA program you did? Oh, my gosh. I took everyone to the Bronx Zoo, and it rocked. All I wanted to do was go to the zoo, and I had no reason to do it, but suddenly I was an RA, and they said, you have a budget, you get to do programs, you get to plan it, and I mapped out. I mean, it was the best. We figured out how we were going to get on the subway, where we were going to stop to eat. We took the, the train all the way up to the Bronx, and we went to the zoo, and we went around, and I got a tour you know, set up because I called ahead. I was like RA king for the week at the Bronx Zoo. Excellent. Great memories. EJ, thanks so much for spending time with Tom and I to discuss your journey and where your life after NYU has taken you. Absolutely. As always, thanks to our listeners who stay connected with RA alums who are living the dream school alumni version of life. EJ, what a great life. And I really appreciate how you talk about your value set and how you live your values each and every day. So thank you so much for being with us this evening. Thank you, Tom. Thank you, Layla. I really appreciate the opportunity. It's fun. Absolutely. Special thanks to our engineer, Dean Maupin, who is new to our podcast and is a music uh, business student as well. Our executive director, Duncan Lemieux, and our executive producer, Shahara Ranasang, and to the current professional staff and the alumni staff, like Catherine Mary, who assisted these great RA alums in skill acquisition along the way. If you like the show, look for more content on the newly unveiled NYU RA alumni website at where-ra-now.webflow.io, which lists RA favorite books, picks of all-time favorite RA memories, RA alumni accomplishments, and ways to be mentored. Until next time, think about how you can learn and teach others and make this a better world. Have a good night.